Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's eLearning, offering online leadership courseware like AACN's award-winning Fundamental Skills for Nurse Managers, with information available at aacn.org forward slash manager course. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. Hi, this is Connie Barden, and I'm excited today to get to talk with Dr. Janice Linton. Janice is a palliative care nurse practitioner and an assistant professor at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. Janice, welcome. I'm so excited to get to pick your brain today. Thank you for having me. The excitement is mine. You know, I want to start out asking you, because what we're here to talk about is you as a leader in palliative care, leading teams to optimize that. But before we go there, I heard that early on in your pre-career days, nursing was never even on your radar. You want to tell us a little bit about how you got involved in being a nurse? So my father has a line, he who has the goal makes the rules, and he's the person that was paying for school. So he had this professional and financial stability vision for me, and that's what led me into nursing. And so 24 years later, I'm still saying, yes, dad, you were right. Well, that just shows sometimes it pays, listen to your dad, huh? especially mm-hmm. when he's paying the bills. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so you were a nurse. I know you had spent time in the ICU, a lot of acute care experience there. My understanding is that turning your interest towards palliative care took someone tapping you on the shoulder. Can you talk a little bit about how your interest shifted to this place where you really have become a national leader and that's in palliative care? So as you know, the ICU is the space where we see the sickest and most vulnerable. And I worked in a CVICU where you can unfortunately see high morbidity, high mortality rates among those critically ill patients. So my journey was, I say it somewhat serendipitous, starting from the operations side where I was tapped to do the data. When I started looking at the data, I discovered that that data entry was attached to a name, a family and a difficult clinical course that I cared for, not realizing that that individual rotated through the different floors in the hospital, whether it's the intensive rehab, back to step down, and not realizing the perceived outcome that medical interventions promised them. And so that's where my clinical inquiry was sparked. Interestingly, at the time I was embarking on my DNP, and so my mindset was now on PICO questions and clinical inquiry. And I'm thinking, why did they not have the outcome that they expected or was promised for medicine? What, if anything, could have been done differently? And what questions did they have and who was providing clarity for them? And so that's where that interest was sparked, talking to the palliative provider as I'm doing the data for them. Then I started reading articles. I'll tell you an AACN article about communication was the first one I read. And I love patient stories within scholarly articles because you connect. You know a John, a Jane, that person on a ventilator that didn't recover well. The rounding with the physicians provided me with that lens. So what I'm hearing is a wonderful mix of data, numbers, science, and the human side of it. And that really is what called to you and got your passions sparked around this. 
Let me ask you this. I know now you're fully in academia in your assistant professor role. You have also spent time in hospitals as nurse practitioner. Can you kind of describe when someone's a nurse practitioner for palliative care, what does a typical day look like? What are some of the activities that you do and how do you find patients or how do patients find you? And can you just kind of paint a picture of that? I had a unique role of joining with a physician who was new in the hospital system. So we were building and flying the plane at the same time. So I had a dual role with administrative duties, again, with that lens for data. I was also already seen as a leader in the organization. I spent my years developing there. It was really a nurturing environment for me. So relationships with their collaborating physician is important. I had those developed relationships just over time, literally growing my career there. And so my role, we had palliative consults. By then, we had gotten the education out because that's paramount, right? Educating the team on what palliative care is and what it can provide for patients and families. And so we would get consults throughout the hospital, majority of them being from the critical care area because, again, ill, critically ill, most vulnerable patients. And in my role, I triaged in the mornings. I would get there early, we'll get a consult sheet printed. So this is all operational. Get the consult list printed and I'm triaging. I'm triaging in terms of symptom management because the hallmark of palliative care is symptom management and impeccable early identification of unmet needs of patients and families. One of our other roles is skill communication and conversation about illness and illness trajectory. So we address symptoms first because if a patient is enduring symptom burden, shortness of breath, anxiety, any existential distress, they cannot engage in goals of care conversation. So symptom management first, and then those goals of care conversation. And there are times when we did divide and conquer based on volume. So we could get three, four new consults. Your follow-up patients could still take the same amount of time because as the medical course occurs and they rally and then there's an exacerbation and a decline, it changes the treatment options, the patient's perspective, the family's perspective. So with that, we would set up family meetings, triaging in terms of needs, and then divide and conquer. So at times I did some of the visits solo, and then there are times when we had collaborative meetings with a licensed clinical social worker and a chaplain. Palliative care is indeed a team approach. Well, before we leave that, you talked about education, so I want to ask you probably one of the most fundamental questions, but I'm an old salt critical care person for years and years, and I still have trouble distinguishing, well, should we call in palliative care? Should we call in hospice? So when you're educating families and practitioners, other clinicians about this, how do you distinguish palliative care versus hospice? So both palliative care and hospice engage in an interprofessional approach focused on alleviating pain and suffering, whether it's physical, spiritual, or psychosocial. Palliative care is a needs-driven philosophy of care at any age and any stage of the illness in conjunction with curative therapies. Hospice is prognosis-driven philosophy of care for the terminally ill patient at the end of life. So there are times that we are called in and we're just like, okay, this patient is actively dying. That's an opportunity, not for us to refuse the consult and say, well, you should have consulted us, but to provide education for the team. This would have been an appropriate conversation for end of life. But if this is something you're struggling with, sit with us in a family meeting to see how we conduct those conversations. Thank you. That was the most concise 
and brilliant description of the distinctions between the two ever. I'm taking notes, so I'm going to try and remember that. Speaking of that and reflecting on what you said about your role as a palliative care MP and now as an academician, I understand that during the peak of COVID, you had a pretty unique experience connecting to hospitals in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? So we've always had a resource gap with board certified providers for palliative care. And then the workforce was even more stretched during the pandemic, sometimes depleted as those providers were also getting ill. So I am still an active member of CAPSI and I was participating in the cause. And of course the pandemic and childcare caused that shift for me, you know, having to not be in full-time practice, but still wanted to add value because I find that I can add value and I, I consider myself an expert clinician. And so in one of those calls, they were seeking help. Like we need help. New York was one of the hardest hit at the time. We need help. I joined in. Yes, here I am, you know, willing and able to help. They wanted telephonic palliative care support. So well-organized, probably the most structured credentialing process I've seen. So we were expeditiously vetted, credentialed, and trained on the various EHRs to support the palliative care team, provide expertise for the team, and then support the family. I would tell you, though, I did have my reservations because palliative care is not transactional. It is very relational in that sacred space with patients and families, where you get time to walk what I call this medical course and provide clarity through rallies and exacerbation of illness. And I wouldn't get that journey, I felt, because I'm in Florida, they're in New York. I wouldn't be in that space to hold sacred space or to hold hands at the bedside. But when I spoke to the family, so on quickly operationally, on Tuesdays I covered I would get a sign out from the palliative provider, review the charts, and then I'm calling the families. And I'll tell you, the families were grateful for phone calls that was not focused on consenting for another procedure. It was just providing information and establishing what they understand about where their loved one was in the illness. So it was very rewarding. It sounds like it would be rewarding, but also very critical for these families, especially as overwhelmed as New York was in those early days, first go around with COVID. That's really fascinating. Even though I hear your reservations about that sacred space, it does sound like you were able to have a meaningful connection. Did you sometimes have the same families week after week, or did you find it changed up, or sometimes the patient didn't last that long? Did you have some ongoing relationships with the same patients and families? I found because I covered for that one day, it changed from week to week because it was the New York Health and Hospital System. So we rotated hospitals as well. You really were a consultative benefit all around the city. That's incredible. Speaking of COVID, before we leave that, have you seen any changes to palliative care related to COVID? Any learnings or anything new or different or just we need more of it because of the extensiveness of the COVID pandemic? Need more providers, need more education in primary palliative care. My dream world and dream job would be giving the nurses the space and the education and the agency really in primary palliative care because you get burnout. COVID really kind of highlighted the shortage of expert palliative providers. And what we were finding in the setting of COVID is the rapid decompensation. And so instead of having that 
rally and decline. It was decompensation and death. And a lot of the consults were end of life within a shift that can be burdensome for, for any healthcare provider. I would often um, direct people to Vital Talk, which provided a free COVID-ready playbook for providers, clinicians to learn those primary palliative care skills and develop some confidence. The other thing I also would talk about even in the, in the setting of COVID, even before that, is team wellness and the importance of checking for sustainability of the workforce. Absolutely fascinating. Say that again. It's called Vital Talk. It's Vital Talk, and it's a COVID-ready communication playbook. Wow. So nurses could use that even as a resource. Nurses can use that as a resource. Okay, I'm going to come back and talk about nurses a little bit more in a second, but one of the things I've heard you talk about when I've heard you lecture and other times too is the two words, hope and concern. I get the feeling that's sort of like your, your byword in your practice related to palliative care. So how do those words guide what you do in working with families, whatever decision-making or learning or whatever? How are those two words sort of like pillars of your practice as you've alluded to before? So part of our skill communication is every area of practice has a vernacular and palliative care does as well. So while hope is not a strategy, we all operate in the state of optimism that keeps us going in the face of adversity, right? And that's what hope is. So as a provider, I acknowledge hope of the patients and families, but I also express and highlight concerns based on the pathology of whatever their illness is. So as I listen to their expression of hope, so an example would be, I want my mom to have the trait to give her time to wake up and talk to us. And my response would be, my hope is that the trait would provide more time to see if mom would recover. My concern is that she has a large stroke in areas affecting her brain for speech, breathing, voluntary movement that's compromising her recovery, her potential for recovery, and what she has described as quality of life. So you're supporting their hope, but you're expressing the concerns based on the disease pathology. And that's where you also provide education and increase that health literacy of the patients if they're being engaged and the family. Brilliant. Really, I totally get that balance. And you can use this with families and with patients directly. Correct. Because sometimes patients themselves can have these conversations with you as well, right? Not just families, but patients themselves sometimes. Correct. So sometimes the patients will say, this is what I'm hoping for. As a clinician, you want to do is you want to get clear on their perception. What do they understand about this particular intervention? What is their understanding of SA trait? And how is that aligning with what they're hoping for? You know, what is the survival benefit? They're hoping that the next round of chemo. So what do they understand about the survival benefit of a third line of chemo? in the setting of a body that doesn't necessarily have the reserves to tolerate chemo. Makes perfect sense. I told you I wanna to talk a little bit more about nurses and palliative care because there's just so much that busy, especially busy critical care nurses, acute care nurses of all ilks have to learn about it just because we're busy and it feels like, well, that's a specialty. As a result, sometimes it seems like palliative care is pulled in way later than it needs to be. Any thoughts about that? Like, when would you say, is there an optimal time to call a palliative care consult? And then if you get called in kind of late, how difficult does that make it to come in and do your thing as, a, as an expert in palliative care? 
So I often share with the nurses that if a patient comes in with positive troponins, you never hesitate to call cardiologists, correct? In the ED, troponins are positive. We need cardiology. So a patient is coming in and they have symptom burden. They have chronic illnesses. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, life is a terminal condition, but not everyone's terminally ill. But a patient comes in with a terminal condition, you know, a cancer diagnosis, pancreatic cancer, just like you would not hesitate to get cardiology involved, GI involved, or a GI bleed, don't hesitate to get palliative care involved. We're there to add value and support treatment preferences that align with what the patient thinks and expects as an outcome. What late encounters sometimes do, patients and families receive us poorly. Because let's say a patient was in the ICU, consider that family in the ICU for 15 days, and they have been swept by the current of medical euphemisms, right? Picking up on words such as better, slightly improved, only to be told on day 16, palliative care is coming in to talk with you about those. They're caught in what I call that communication gap where no one was really talking in this trajectory. And now there's this misdirected anger that we have to spend some time initially dispelling and then we can move forward. So sometimes when I walk into the room and I get, we're not ready for that, I usually ask them, tell me what you think that is. And then that day I just sit with them and they narrate what they know about their loved ones. We talk about how mom was at Christmas, how mom was at the last baseball game. And at the end of that encounter, I say to them, so how did you feel about that? Because this is what palliative care does. And it, it often changes how patients and families receive us. So the sooner the better, although that wouldn't be if we need to call palliative care on every patient, but a thoughtful assessment of what's going on in patients who need symptom management, education, and I guess alignment with the team on the goals of care would be sort of a a guideline. And I never thought about translating medical euphemisms is a great one. The one we use all the time is, shall we do everything? We say that all the time to families. Do you want us to do everything? And how many times have we heard families say, well, I wanted you to do everything, but I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to pump on his chest, you know? And it's true. When we work on the medical side, we say this stuff and assume that it translates to family. Palliative teams can help to do some of this translation for patients and for families. So we call that language with unintended consequences, right? So everything is an empty and a loaded word all at once. So I always ask them, what does everything mean to you? And what do you think everything is going to get? And so we explore that for the time, you know, that we have those initial encounters. So that's why I'm saying palliative care is so relational. It's not the first encounter you walk in and you're walking out with a DNR. That is not the intent of palliative care. And we also have to remind Clinicians, the goals of care is the patients and families, not yours. So you can't be tied to the outcome that you want for them. Our job is to provide clarity and fill in those medical gaps. I want to jump back to the um, appropriate time. There are palliative screening tools that are built in some EHRs that you can screen these patients and they meet a criteria or you know, recommendations for palliative consult. And then it gives the palliative care team the opportunity to come again, do their triage and provide some education. Oh, this is a conversation that you could have. The thing that we would caution um, organizations is, do you have the workforce to support this? And if you don't, back to leadership, 
what are you as the organization, the leaders of the organization, when you start thinking systems thinking and leadership, I live and breathe the essentials. When you start thinking systems thinking and leadership, what are you putting in place to give the nurses the tools to start these early primary care palliative um, conversations? Again, that would be my dream role to, to just go around and provide education. Exactly. So palliative care becomes a part of everyone's practice, not this isolated thing that gets called in here and there. Denise, let me ask you, I've been in situations and talked to colleagues and friends who've been in situations where they wanted to call a palliative consult or did, and um, other providers didn't necessarily agree. And there was some conflict, you know, not lack of alignment with medical teams sometimes and nurses who thought it was appropriate for palliative care. Any thoughts about how to get around that. I know you're going to say communicate with the providers, first of all, but sometimes there's a tension where providers don't want to give up, so to speak. And sometimes I think there's a thought that calling in palliative care means we're giving up on the patient. Any thoughts about getting the team aligned around supporting palliative care consults? So I often change that narrative that palliative care, there is no giving up because as you hear the word, it says care, palliative care. We are always providing care. And remember, palliative care is offered in conjunction with curative therapy. We just now need to align with the patient what medical possibilities exist and limitations. And again, with back to languaging, I always wanna teach people languaging because why is there a resistance? Sometimes it's languaging. So I often say to the provider, help me to see what you're seeing. I reviewed Ms. So-and-so's chart and this is what I'm seeing. When I speak with her, this is what she's saying. So help me to see what you're seeing. The other thing I'll say to is, okay, I'll stay this medical course with you know, your design plan. It may or may not align with the patient, but when treatment becomes more burdensome than beneficial, we're not practicing medicine. Jadi, so much of what you're talking about, education, communication, the patient at the center, relationships, and I think advocacy, those are characteristics of what I think both formal and informal leaders keep in mind all the time. But going back to the particular characteristic of advocacy, let me ask you, do you think that nurses, frontline bedside nurses, should be involved in palliative care conversations or family meetings when teams get together? It is vital that the direct care nurse be involved in these family meetings. So we talk about the driver of the patient's care. Sometimes the driver of the patient's care is the physician. Sometimes the driver is that trusted nurse that they see from shift to shift to shift, who they've shared their stories with about what matters most to them, about what matters most to them if time becomes short. And so I always say to the nurse, your vital voice is there to support the patient's choices. When you sit in family meetings with expert palliative providers and you watch the dynamic the outcome, the impact that palliative care provides for these patients and families, then you are able to advocate for the next patient with similar symptom burden or need. To say, no, I sat in a family meeting and this is what I witnessed and this is the outcome it had for that patient. I recommend a family meeting. So the voice of the nurse, because the nurse often knows the patient, like the real humanness of the patient better than anyone else, is almost crucial in terms of well, that's the way that we lead at the bedside, isn't it? Direct care nurses helping to be the voice for the patient if the patient can't speak on their, on their own. We also have the language to express 
to the physicians the needs that the patient may not be able to express. Or sometimes I will tell you because of physician provider relationship, when the trajectory is now leading to end of life, that physician has seen the patient rally. Remember, we see patients in the hospital setting in their acute phase, but they rally sometimes from these exacerbations and almost like this gratitude to the physician for getting them out of that last. But this time around, they may not rally and they feel it. So they're struggling to express to the physician, doc, not another round of chemo, not, but the nurse has the agency now and the advocacy and the voice to share. This is what I discussed with Miss so-and-so this morning, and she's concerned with that. And back to that languaging, our role as a palliative provider is to help the nurse with that languaging. I spoke with her this morning. She understands that, but she's expressing this. I wanna shift our focus a little bit, not only for the acute care environment, but patients who need palliative care often are in outpatient settings or even community settings. How do we or palliative teams help patients to navigate that as they sort of leave our controlled environment of the ICU and go into these other settings? Do you have experience with that? We have some limitations in the outpatient setting. What I've heard from patients is, is it true palliative care or is this now a stream for hospice because unfortunately being tied to reimbursement, right? So how are providers getting reimbursed and what's giving the reimbursement? So then we, we lose that focus of meeting the needs of the patient. One of the things that I'll find that patients lack is that access to just information. So I'll give you an example about my father-in-law. Diagnosis of early stage prostate cancer. He goes in, he has a prostatectomy and has a Foley catheter, doesn't understand how Foley's work. And I noticed that it's impacting his ambulation. And I'm like, what's, what's happening? You, you didn't have surgery on your legs, you were walking. He's like, well, how am I gonna do that? It's gonna fall out. And if it falls out, I have to go back to the hospital. What we need to remember is that health literacy. So the patients are credentialed individuals, but they are educated and skilled in their field, not ours. So where a provider would be able to help. So now you have this diagnosis of prostate cancer. What is your life going to look like? Because remember now, this comes with this level of anxiety. Anybody who hears certain diagnosis, it comes with this level of anxiety. So how are we providing um, that ongoing support for patients in the outpatient setting? That is the number one question that we have as inpatient providers that we feel like we've, um, now we've sent them out. There are some hospices that do have outpatient services and we tap the patients in with those services. So there are those services. We just need to get that streamlined before they get discharged. And like someone like my father-in-law, what would have happened? High utilization, because he would have come right back to the ED. So we also need to see the cost avoidance in supporting outpatient palliative teams. So in that situation, you're able to say to him, look, no, here's how this works. You can get up and walk. And he actually did that. That was a success story. Yes. So I'm an illustrator when I have difficult conversations or just goals of care conversations with families. A picture, not to avoid being cliche, pictures, thousand words. So I actually drew bladder, catheter, show him the balloon inflated. And I actually learned that skill as a palliative provider when I'm having conversations about a trach often patients think, because this is what we tell them, well, we can't keep the longer tube in the, in the trachea, so we're going to move it and put a shorter one so they can talk to you. No, they're still vent dependent. 
they had a catastrophic stroke. So it is literally just moving the two, putting in a different location, but mom or dad will still need the vent. So I actually do illustrations. I do tables as well. So this is what recovery should look like over time. You should have stacked good days every day. If you're not seeing that, then disease process is happening faster than treatment can help, right? If you think about it that way. And medicine has its limitations and so does the body. There's physiologic limitations of the body. And sometimes patients, they don't understand that. And so we have that conversation. And I do option A, trach, feeding tube, go to an LTAC, then I should be looking for stacked good days and this is what it looks like. Or option B, I see that this is not honoring mom's wishes. We reviewed her advanced directive. How can I honor the human dignity of what she would want at end of life? Health literacy and illustration. That's so great. I would even say this is where you grab the paper towel out of the thing and start drawing. It doesn't have to be fancy, right? Correct. But you're right. A picture's worth a thousand words. And you don't have to be an artist to do that. I love the concept of tables and options. But I think what we end up doing a lot of times is just talking at people. And I never had thought of the power that taking a little time, very little time, but making an illustration or a very simple drawing could really help that. I bet you've seen a lot of people grab those paper towels or whatever you use and put them in their purse or their pocket and refer to oh, them yes. later. Yes, that is one of the things I, I also learned. Um, so Dr. Diane Meyer was the director of CAPSI, and I am just an avid admirer of her work. And she always, you know, would talk about giving the patient something to walk away with because they're so overwhelmed in that moment, in that space. So then they'll go back and look at it and be able to reach out to you. Okay, so I... I have this written down and I'm not clear. One of the things that I think we miss as providers when, when we talk about health literacy is my first question is always, tell me what you understand about your illness. That now you're able to establish health literacy because no, they're not clear on what feeding tubes do in the setting of Parkinson's disease where you have a mechanical compromise. And so it's not gonna prevent aspiration. It's an artificial source of nutrition. But when they're telling you what they understand about Parkinson's, especially end-stage Parkinson's, then you can provide clarity around the intervention of a feeding tube. Makes perfect sense. And I'll tell you, I could just listen to you talk for hours about that. There's something very calming and wise in your speaking, and yet we don't have that kind of time. So I want to ask you sort of a wrap-up question to say, if you got to say anything you wanted to our listeners about palliative care. What is it that you wish they knew or that they would remember as sage words from you related to this topic? So I use the word clarity several times in this conversation. I wish people knew the clarity that palliative care provides for patients and families. So when patients are having symptom burden and you establish some symptom control and they feel heard, seen, and supported, they can often see a way forward despite where they are in the illness. And I'll leave this final story with you. So in my role in academia, I give lectures, unfortunately it's just added like once a semester, but I provide lectures on palliative care and with my expertise and that lens, I can also bring the patient's story. And I was so surprised when one of the students reached out to me after to thank me for the lecture, because young student, she was able to share with me that her friend, newly diagnosed with cancer, 
did not know that there was another option. They did surgery and she felt that it was surgery and she was just now abandoned. Sadly, no one told her about the model of palliative care, even in the setting of a cancer diagnosis. And I wanna change that narrative. And so the thing I would leave with folks is the clarity that palliative care provides for your families and even for, the, for you, the patient and the providers is the way forward despite where you are in the world. I couldn't say anything any better. It is about clarity. It's about relationships. It's a relational practice is what you've taught us. And it's focused there in what you call that sacred space between the clinicians and the patients and the families where our work takes place. And what I'm really learning is we need to include palliative care in our thinking and list of options early because it can give patients and family clarities that they may not otherwise have. Dr. Janice Linton, what a joy to get to talk to you. I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. And um, I look forward to the next time we get to chat. It was my pleasure. Anytime I could speak about palliative care all day. It is my passion. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast. Proudly sponsored by AACN's award-winning Fundamental Skills for Nurse Managers. With information available at aacn.org forward slash manager course. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.